Going around that my dad was going to be the scarecrow. That he was actually originally chosen unofficially to be the scarecrow, and then Ray Bolger came on the set, and his dance is so incredible. That, you know, basically the part went to him, and Dad got the Tin Man role. Welcome to the third season of the Good Tidings Podcast, where we highlight and inspire a community of givers with your host, the founder of the Good Tidings Foundation, Larry Harper. Well, it is a pleasure to be sitting here in Malibu Canyon at this amazing ranch with this month's guest. So Kiki Epson, welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast. Well, thank you, Larry. Uh, we first met back 22 years ago when you were the keyboardist and backup vocalist for Michael McDonald at a benefit concert for the Good Tidings Foundation. And I approached you after the show, told you about our charity, and the following year you performed for us and have done so many, many times. So first of all, I want to thank you for all the support. Truly my pleasure. <laughs> yeah. You've lived such an amazing and interesting life, and I think I'd like to start out with really how was it growing up with a very famous father? People my age certainly would know him as Jed Clampett or Barnaby Jones. So tell us a little bit about the growing up with him. Wow. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> when I look back on it, it depends on what stage of my life, you know, right right now, I mean, what an opportunity to grow when you when you grow up in the light of such an iconic actor. But when I was a child, I didn't know that what he did was so special to other people. I just thought that that's what all fathers did, actually, when we were really young. I thought, all fathers are on television, and and if I couldn't find my dad at home, he would be on television. So I'd look on television for him during the day. And he was a very warm, very warm, the way you'd see him on television, just super kind and soft-spoken and strong and tall, you know. And he was just like a rock for us growing up and fun. You know, we didn't, we lived for a little bit in, in Beverly Hills, but at a very young age, we moved to Balboa Island because my dad was a sailor and loved to be near his boat. And so that life was so far removed from Hollywood. And it was just all about playing sponge tag on the beach and just living a pretty normal life on an island, in a little island, in a little bungalow house, you know. And then, then things started to change a little bit as the hillbillies became more successful. The house got bigger, you know, and more complicated relationships. You start to see the other side of fame, which is too many people kind of coming at you and glomming onto you. And you start to realize they're not doing it for you. They're doing it because of your dad. And you start to think, well, I'm special. I've got this name, and but it's actually my dad's name, and who am I? You know. So as you start to grow as a person, you start to wonder who you are and you explore. But, I mean, for the most part, up until I was about 9 or 10, I was pretty happy-go-lucky. And then I started getting into competitive horse showing and things like that, and the family got bigger and more spread out. So I didn't see my dad as much during those years. You know, uh, the hillbillies ran nine years, and then he got Barnaby Jones. 
right after that. So pretty much my entire growing up, my dad was on a major series. So he was gone quite a bit. But when we saw him, it was it was special, and he was generous and was very interested in the things that we were doing. He also had very particular ideas about what he thought we should be doing, <laughs> 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 to which I definitely butted heads with him several times. So, But like I said, looking back, the generosity of both of my parents and their artistic talent, my mother was also in, in the theater, created an absolute cornucopia of opportunity to explore your own muse, the good and the bad, you know, the lights and the shadows of which there are quite a few in every family, but especially one that's that's in the spotlight. Yeah. And your father, Buddy, was originally cast for the movie Wizard of Oz. Tell us about that story, how that went. Sure. He was a contract player for MGM. So at that time, you're really assigned roles. You're not, you know, you hear of a movie coming into the studio and then you're like hoping you're, you're going to at least be working, right? So there was a rumor going around that my dad was going to be the scarecrow, that he was actually originally chosen unofficially to be the scarecrow. And then Ray Bulger came on the set and his dance is so incredible. That, you know, basically the part went to him and dad got the Tin Man role. And then, you know, the shooting began, and it's a very famous story, especially in the makeup schools, about how they dusted his face with aluminum powder to create the effect of the Tin Man. And over the course of a couple of weeks, he inhaled that aluminum powder, the, the real aluminum powder, not, not fake, and it coated the inside of his lungs. So he started to cramp up, and he was feeling a little weird on set, but he didn't want to say anything because that original production of The Wizard of Oz was had so many problems, you know, and it's like, I'm not going to be another problem on this set, right? So he didn't even talk about it. But after two weeks, he woke up in the middle of the night, the aluminum had coated the inside of his lungs like paint, so he couldn't get oxygen to his blood. And his, that's what was happening. But the symptoms were his hands and, and his fingers and his toes were curling back on themselves. So he was having extreme muscle cramps. And then his, his chest tightened up to the point where he thought he was going to die because he was suffocating. So he went in the emergency and they put him under, you know, on an iron lung and oxygen tent. And he, it was there that he recuperated. And they recast him, you know, because they had to get back to work. And then they, you know, they had fired the director and made a lot of changes on The Wizard of Oz. But at the time, you know, cast players are, they don't have any real support, you know, in terms of even how the experience was portrayed to the press was that he had an allergic reaction. Well, he didn't have an allergic reaction. He was poisoned by (laughs) aluminum powder. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's funny, at the end of his contract, Louis B. Mayer actually asked my dad to stay on, you know, if he'd renew his contract, (laughs) which is so ironic. It's like, really? But he also said to my dad that the the studio would have to own you. And my dad said to him, nobody owns me. And he, you know, went on to poverty (laughs) for the next 10 years. But he, he maintained that independence. But it was an experience that for him was so difficult that he did not tell us. I had to find out when I was an adult. Yeah. Never knew. So interesting, the whole contract scene of Hollywood now, where it seems like finally the actors do control their destiny a little bit more. They do. But even during the Hillbillies, dad didn't have control. He didn't have residuals. Wow. He didn't have a piece of the character. Interesting. Times have changed. Yeah. It is very interesting. You've gone on to release a, a record 
called Scarecrow Sessions, and you also have this wonderful show that I've seen that everyone needs to see, which is called To Dad With Love, obviously a way to pay homage to your father. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I had uh, found a trunk in my mother's house after my parents had split up and they both had passed away. And it was like a missing trunk because I have a feeling my dad was looking for it at one time. And it was among her sewing stuff. And I looked in it and I went, wow, this is interesting. It was all these scripts from my dad's life back, you know, in New York and, you know, in early television. So like script from the Red Skelton show and the Twilight Zone script. Interesting. (laughs) You know, the real stuff. And then then there was like Born to Dance and Yokel Boy, which was a Broadway show in the 1930s. And these are original scripts. So it's like kind of like this place where he had stuck all these, this memorabilia. And then I found his songbook from The Wizard of Oz. And I went, wow, this is a treasure trove. And I got of course, very emotional and thought, wow, dad always wanted me to be a jazz singer. And I, in my rebellious state said, no, (laughs) I'm going to sing rock and roll. And it's a funny story I tell on the show that my dad always wanted me to study with Joe Stafford. And I said, who's he? (laughs) I want, I I want to play with Alice Cooper. And and he goes, who's she? (laughs) So uh, we really didn't see eye to eye. Anyway, I thought based on what I had found, I would do my next record. I would do a tribute to him and I would sing jazz, which I ended up actually doing pretty well. I have songs from his career and that's what Scarecrow Sessions is. And that from that record we created to dab with love, a tribute yeah. to Buddy Epson. really remarkable and your vocals and keyboard playing has supported so many musicians like Al Jarreau and Boz Skaggs, Belinda Carlisle, Chicago, Michael Bolton, so many others. When you play for a different musician like that, is it hard to adapt from one person to the next, to the next show, the next show? Yes and no. It becomes actually, you just get into a process when you take on a, a new tour. There's of course a learning curve where you have a lot of material to learn in a short amount of time. And if you're lucky, you get enough rehearsal, you know, where you can put the show together. And then when you get out on the road, you're ideally not reading charts. I mean, that's part of being a touring musician. It's a performance. So you're not, it's different from like a jazz gig or something where you're going to look down at the charts all the time. You want the music to be a part of who you are. You want to really be truly part of that band. And that's, at least that's what I did. And the bulk of that work for me was really during the 90s and in the 2000s. And once I learned it, I also have one of these like memories that once I learn it, I'll never forget it, you know? And people will call me. Sometimes I won't do a gig for 10 years, you know, and someone will call me to come back and do it. And I'll, I'll, I'll know the parts, I'll know the sounds I used. And a lot of times, you know, I keep the archives. I do a lot of synthesizer work. So a lot of it sounds, a lot of it strings and horns, as well as all the piano and electric piano organ type stuff. But yeah, I just pretty much have a pretty good ear. <laughs> and is the piano playing and the singing, are you mostly self-taught? For the most part, yeah. I mean, I, I did study, I had lessons, but what I rely on is what I learned just by ear. 
And then, of course, the technical studies, the exercises just allow you to better dexterity when you're doing parts. And I, you know, there's things that you learn that you rely on. But most of it's intuition. My singing style developed over time because I really didn't like my voice actually at all. <laughs> Let me just be transparent. I didn't like it and I didn't consider myself a singer. And to this point, I, I to this day, I actually consider myself a keyboard player that sings. It wasn't until I made a move away from touring about 10 years ago to do my own projects that I discovered my voice. And it was through also a series of, of experiences that I put myself through to push myself the parameter of improvisation and jazz, doing jazz. And you know, I went to school for classical music, but to incorporate that and make it my own where you're not being derivative or you're not trying to sound like anybody else, that just takes, to me, it just took age and, and the process of just going through it. And now I love to sing. I mean, I, I still am not like Oh, I love my voice, but I can actually listen to it now and go, wow, that's really good. In fact, I had an experience over Christmas where I was at my father-in-law's house and he had scarecrow sessions on and I hadn't heard it for a long time. And I went, and as I walked in, I went, God, this is so cool. Who is the singer? <laughs> I wrote this so mellow and like, oh, it's me. So I got to listen to myself from as, as a listener would and went, okay. I need to do some more of this. I'm not over. Yeah. <laughs> it's not over yet for me. And your voice is so youthful and beautiful, the tone of it. And if people haven't heard it, we'll, we'll definitely put in the show notes a way for people to, to grab some of your music. How do you keep that youthful, beautiful tone for 40 plus years you've been singing? Oh, wow. Well, I never abused my voice. And thank goodness I don't smoke, you know, and as we get older, we start to take care of our bodies a lot more. That is huge. You know, I do yoga. I'm a, I have an app. I live yoga as well as a practice. It's in my life. And that just the asana practice, which is the movement practice, keeps your core in really good shape. And that, that is so beneficial to singing and holding the line through your, through your voice. I can't say enough about taking care of yourself. One of my favorite projects that I do is one for Joni Mitchell, you know, and, and just kind of watching how her voice had changed over time. I mean, the lifetime smoker and, you know, it's almost like I, I feel mad at her because I'd love to be hearing Joni Mitchell, you know, but you can't because, you know, she can't sing anymore and emphysema and, you know, as well as other challenges. But I see people kind of abuse themselves when they could be offering so much more. So for me, it's just, I want to do this until I can't do it anymore, whenever that is. And I guess it's just being really clean with your living. Yeah. And you have released eight of your own records. Who are your biggest influences? Well, Joni Mitchell, for sure. I love all those 70s singer, girl, female singer-songwriters, Carol King, Laura Nero. I love Ricky Lee Jones. I let James Taylor, love him. I just love him. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Irregardless. <laughs> Irregardless of anything. I love Ella Fitzgerald, all the sultry jazz singers, and classical singers in the mezzo-soprano range. Frederica von Stad was one of my influences. And then I think now, I've, Joe Stafford, it's so ironic yeah. that I turn around and I, I love all those those early great American songbook singers. And I know my dad is smiling down from wherever, just going, yeah, finally, she she figured it out. So I'm, I'm influenced by a lot. I, I love classical, I love jazz. I'd say the only style of music that I'm not that influenced by would be polka. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good. We eliminate oh, that one. Yeah, yeah. You lay 
So really the essence of this podcast is really to dive into the goodness our guests do. And I, I really am intrigued by the philanthropic side of your life. But before we go there, can you give us a little history of the ranch we're sitting at? Oh, sure. It was built in 1929 by a man named Clark Bonner. And he um, developed a lot of properties, I guess, in the United States. But this was actually built to be like a hunting lodge. Because at that time, hunting was still a big deal. And his son actually came out here 20 or 30 years ago, trying to show his daughter, you know, wondering if it was still here. And he, he had tears in his eyes when he when he walked in and he saw it. A lot of the original furniture is still here. We are the second owner. My parents got it in 1963. They found it, a little ad in the paper. We were living in Balboa Island. It was actually an escrow to Bob Hope, who owned all the land around us. Any of the history of, of Agora, Bob Hope owned quite a bit of it. In fact, owned the ranch, the neighboring ranch, where his brother managed all the properties. The story is, is that this, this piece slipped out of escrow and the owners put it on the market for just like a couple of weeks. And my dad came up and saw it and bought it. Really was kind of a funny little, going forward, his relationship with Bob Hope was, was kind of interesting. But the <laughs> land around it, as a result, eventually was donated to the state park. So we're an in-holding in a state park. How so unique driving in here. I yeah, mean, what it's a, very unique. Very, yeah. very unique. Your charitable side was developed, I was reading, at a young age when you would perform with your dad and you'd go to residential housing and churches. And tell us about that experience and how did that rub off to what you are today with some of the charitable work you do? Well, my dad just loved, he loved to perform and it's, it's showbiz, you know, it's showbiz. Let's go put on a show. And I, I don't even know. I don't think it was he asked us. He just said we were trying to do it. <laughs> it wasn't like a request. It was like, okay, we're going to go to the El Toro Marine Base and we're going to perform for the, you know, for the Marines and and or to the Motion Picture Country Home here in Calabasas. And so we basically just put on a little vaudeville show and we did what we could. You know, for me, I would I'd play a little piano. I would sing. My sister would dance. My dad would dance. My brother played the drums. You know, my dad and him would do a little routine. And I eventually, you know, danced a bit myself, you know, although I never considered myself the tap dancer in the in the family, but which is funny because I do tap dance in this uh, to dad with love. <laughs> so I just thought he was so generous again. He loved his fans and he just loved to perform no matter what. I mean, like if any, he would like, I'd laugh, he'd go into soft shoe, like in the market, you know, or at the gas station or, I mean, just like dad. Okay. Enough. You know, where would I go? So it was easy for me to look at the arts as a way of giving back because no matter what I'm performing for, I, it's to feeds me, whether I'm, you know, making a ton of money at it or just giving it away. I mean, the reward for me is the same. The money just allows you to survive and do more of, of what you want to do, which is just do your art or whatever that is. So that was just a gift that he just gave us just by being the person that he was. And my mother's the same way. She was very generous with her time. And we were always sponsoring families from overseas. And, you know, and at Christmas, I remember a very 
very deeply taking on it. We didn't, we forego our presents that year and we wrapped presents for other families. And again, I thought it was a very generous way to, to share that with your children because clearly we're privileged, very privileged family, <laughs> you yeah, know? Right. So that's great. Yeah. So on this amazing property, you started the nonprofit called the Healing Equine Ranch back in 2007. Before we get into that, Cherry, where did your love of horses come from? Did it come from when you guys moved from Balboa to this ranch? Well, it's definitely stirred the fire. My sisters had horses and they went to horse camp while we were living in Balboa. And then, of course, moving up here. All I know is when I came here for the first time, there was something so magnetic to my soul even as a little child, I was obsessed with this place. And of course, horses. And I you know, used to draw horses. And all I wanted was a horse. And my first concussion at two years old was off on a horse. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> So that's probably where it came from. Just again, the generosity of my parents being able to allow us a lifestyle where we could have horses. And then my sisters, even though they were very, very, very controlling about my horse experience, you know, as, as older sisters would be, put me through all sorts of hoops, you know, to actually, before I could actually get on the horse and ride. But I, I learned pretty quickly how to attack my own horse and ride by myself. And I rode all over these mountains and rode very well. And it just, it was such a different lifestyle to move into competitive horseback riding. And the two worlds did not, <laughs> did not, were not the same at all. But anyway, that's where it all came from. Yeah. Yeah. And how many horses do you have as part of the program, and how did you acquire most of those horses? Well, right now I have 10. The age range is from age 4 to 35. Oh, my goodness. I know. So what is the lifespan of a horse, obviously? Well, once they start hitting their 30s, that's a pretty old horse. Yeah. Yeah. Now, they start breaking down, you know, in their 20s, usually. Something will start happening. Usually, it's a leg ailment, but the number one killer usually is colic. You know, the horses will colic. But I have four of them that are over 20. And so, I have my, like, baby group and my midlife group and my senior group. And we have the senior barn. And so, I've acquired them um, over over the years, mostly through rescue I'm not a rescue where I take in a bunch of rescues and then rehome them, although that is something maybe someday I'm going to revisit. I thought I was going to do that and I became too attached to the horses that I took in because they illuminated these parts of me and actually in a healing way. So I went, well, I can't let you go because you, you, you got me to see this part aspect of myself and then, you know, and so on and so forth. So at the same time, I got involved with psychologists that were doing work in rehabs and equine therapy was becoming a thing that w- was part of the rehab. Your 30 day stay would include a day, of what they call equine. And that's, you bring the group out and there's a series of exercises that you do with the horses that cause you to process outside the office, off the couch with a psychologist, but they need to have an equine person as well. So that got me interested in the idea of equine therapy. And then I morphed that with the natural horsemanship principles that I've been learning over the last 20 odd years, which is all about learning the language of horses. And it was changing the way I started to deal with my own relationships by learning how to deal with horses or be with horses, learning their language. It was all energy-based, all intention-based, taking up space into your body. You learn boundaries. You learn clear, concise communication, mean what you say. And and you're so clear with a horse and you watch how they work and you just become a better person. So that morphed into a lot of growth and learning programs that I do here now with people and horses and of it's been mostly one-on-one because of our pandemic, but something I hope to get more into a group form as we go forward. 
Yeah, when we you had our my family out here, my two kids, my wife and I, ten years ago, and we went down to the barn and you said we're going to talk to the horses, which we had no idea what you were meaning, but how <laughs> to get the horse to do something without even saying words, and it was so interesting. And why? How does that help the person, so to speak? And what can you learn from that? Well, there's a saying that 97% of our language is unspoken. And you really know a lot about what a person is about without even speaking to them. Their energy gives it away. Their eyes, their body language, just the way they are in space. And that's how horses are. They speak very little with sound, but they say much with their ears and their eyes, the skin on their neck, the tightness of the muscles. If they're turning towards you, turning away from you, if their ear is on you, you know, you can tell where their attention is. They're, they might go, oh, they're prey animals, so their senses are acute. So they help us develop a sense of who we are and refine things in a way where as there's so much clutter in this world. There's so much busyness. There's so much to take in with social media, through our eyes, our ears, so much to, that we can put in our mouths and just experience that horses are real, super simple. So there's a simplicity about being with them that allows us to focus on what is important to us and maybe perhaps let go of some of the stuff that we don't need. And that's a choice. People who come to me, I don't do a lot of advertising. People are drawn to it in a way because they're ready. They're like, this is not working for me anymore. It was. It's the stage of life where busy, busy, create, create, create. But when we get to a point, we're going to have to let it go anyway. Why not start to develop skills that'll help us and find peace and some more happiness in our life? And so you have these horses, and obviously you self-discovered what a horse can do. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like you say, I'm going to start this charity. You had the horses, you had the property, and you saw what the horses did for you. Yeah. And just passed it on to others. Yeah. And again, through opportunities like working with the rehabs and watching how the changes in these people. And they only, we only got them for one day. I developed programs where you'd, we'd meet, you know, once a week for four weeks or eight weeks and watch the progression. And we teach, you know, the basics are like ground skills. How do you lead a horse? How do you feel for a horse? And a lot of people think horses are just about getting on them, kicking them to go and pulling them to stop. Well, but what would it look like if you got on a horse bareback and bridleless and just inhaled and brought your life up and they walked forward? And then you exhaled and brought your life down and they stopped. You have no bridle or side. I mean, not every horse you're going to have that opportunity, but you could side, side by side. You could lead a horse where they match your body energy. It's just like they are in the wild. You see animals murmurate all the time, fish, you know, birds, whether they're out. One animal is leading and the rest is following. So we learn how to be leaders because they're herd animals, so they have a hierarchy. It's very, it gets very, very deep into horse psychology, horse hierarchy, and then how do we assimilate that and how do we use that? How do we use it effectively? And it's being used very effectively in leadership courses. I've, had a, I've hosted a few corporate leadership events. Obviously, certain demographics, you know, men's groups, women's groups, teenagers, even kids, there are ways they can learn to slow down by being with the horses. It really, you know, just have to find your, find your audience. People, healer, healers, teachers, there are so many opportunities for this work with horses and so many ways to go with it too. Yeah. Do you think the horses have some benefit, receive benefit themselves? You know, I haven't heard anyone complain. 
<laughs> but they also get a lot. They get a lot of treats. My, I have students. I'm like, okay, don't treat them too much. Let's treat them afterwards. You know, there's a place to use treats. Definitely. For me, as long as you space it out and you don't overdo it, and that's that's where I run into a little bit of a disconnect from the normal riding schools because I don't teach riding per se. I'll teach a segue that will get you to riding, and I will teach students on an individual basis. But if you're running a riding school, those horses have to be on all the time, and they become school horses, and they tune out. And that's not a judgment. It's just an ism. If you're going to do that kind of riding, jumping, whatever it is, that repetitive over and over and over, and eventually their lifespan, they'll break down at some point. But it has to be done in order for people to get enough riding experience, you know, who don't have a horse. So... I just don't choose to do that for my horses. I, I, I like them to be really fresh. I like them to be really conversational. So I do a lot of groundwork. I do a lot of liberty. And I do a little bit of riding with, with certain students. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you. I just, uh, I'm so blessed to have got to know you. You're such a beautiful person with a beautiful voice. You're doing such beautiful work here with your horses to help heal people, children through adults on all sorts of issues. So thank you so much for joining my life. It's been Ah, really great. My pleasure. I adore you. You know that. (laughs) (laughs) You have just enjoyed an episode of the Good Tidings podcast, highlighting the goodness in people. To learn more about and to support the Good Tidings Foundation, log on to goodtidings.org. This monthly program is brought to you by the generosity of responseresponsibility.org. Don't miss out on the Good Tidings podcast by reviewing and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.